Welcome to another session with the Market Dominance Guys, a program about the innovators, idealists, and entrepreneurs who thrive and die in the high-stakes world of building a startup company. We explore the cookbooks, guidebooks, and magic beans needed to grow your business. So let's get going. You're listening to the Market Dominance Guys with your host, Chris Beal of Connect and Sell and Corey Frank of Uncommon Pro. Welcome to the episode of the Market Dominance Guys, where the best in sales today comes together with Chris Beal, CEO of Connect and Sell. And so, Chris, uh, first of all, good afternoon. You've got a lot going on in your life, which we may get to in this episode. But before we click the record button, we're talking about sales. And the problem in sales today is the pursuit, is the nature of sales in and of itself is the fact that the desire for the transaction puts most salespeople already behind the eight ball. So let's just set that up a little bit better, just so I understand what that high mountain air has given you from the latest riff. Uh, well, actually, no high mountain air here. We're moving from Seattle. We're moving to Port Townsend because we can't. And uh, part of that is, the, I'll call it the great work from home migration, where mm-hmm. folks are able to live wherever they want now if they're knowledge workers. Employers have lost the moral authority to tell people to come in and risk their lives in order to uh, get their three pounds of brain physically closer to another bunch of three pounds of brain by moving 3,000 <laughs> pounds of steel for 26 minutes each way. That's correct. You know, that was a a strange idea to start with. You never would have designed it that way. If you'd thought about it for a minute, you'd you'd never have said, I got a great idea. People could talk remotely to each other and and do all sorts of things, collaborate and do stuff. But let's actually see if we should, you know, I, I got a better idea. Let's move 3,000 pounds of steel for 30 minutes yeah. in order to get yeah. those brains close enough that the way they talk to each other is right through the air rather than through the telephone. It's finally been shown by necessity to be bankrupt and, and we're never going back. But the point about uh, sales, the problem with sales, I remember one of my reps once asked me in Denver when I'd come back from flying across country, remember when we used to do that? And I vaguely recall, yes, absolutely. Yeah, we were all sitting together and talking about how to get better. And he said, well, what's the one thing you would change about us to make us sell like you as effectively as you do? And I said, oh, it's simple. I would have you believe in the value of what we do or the potential value of what we could provide for the person that we're talking with as much as I do. So I get it. And then they buy more. So no, if the purpose of you believing that is for them to buy more, it won't work. Unless you're a psychopath, it doesn't work. So it's not yeah. just product knowledge. No, it's the opposite. Product knowledge is, is actually you need to have confidence that the product that you represent has an above average chance of being part of a potential solution that you might explore and you might find part of within the next conversation. And the next conversation could tell you enough to tell you to move forward or not move forward. That's all you could do. And I call it the dog, the fence, and the phone problem. So when I was a kid, I grew up out in the desert north of Scottsdale, what is now Scottsdale, but back then it was way out there. And we finally put up a chain link fence because our goats were a problem. And they were a problem like, you know, they climbed up on this realtor's convertible T-bird. They have sharp hooves, and it's not so great when they're dancing around on on the convertible roof. And that cost my parents a little money. Then they went next door. We had one neighbor. It's kind of funny. Within a mile, we had one neighbor, and they were next door. 
and went into their garage and sort of started a fire in this guy's ham radio set, which wasn't that great, right? So we put up a chain link fence and that meant our dogs were inside the fence. And one time I did an experiment. It was a very cruel experiment, but I was kind of an experimental kind of kid. And every once in a while, I think I got it from my mom, you know, the woman who used to say, you know, Chris, there's a lot of room out in that desert to bury a child. <laughs> I thought, I'm going to open the, the gate over here, and then I'm going to come down about, you know, 30, 40 feet away and put a dog bone, you know, one of those milk bones on the other side of the fence and see what my dog does. And the dog tried to go through the fence, tried to go over the fence, tried to go under the fence but never got the idea that it should back up and, and look around and see the open gate and go through the open gate. I think that this is how, sadly, most salespeople behave. Rather than trying to find the opening that may not be there, and if it's not there, use your precious time to go find another fence, you know? Uh, the opening that might lead to a place from which a, a mutual solution can be understood. You take in the role of the expert, you're the specialist, but not using that role in a corrupt way to, to try to manipulate or force somebody into a transaction. Mm -hmm. Just using that expertise in order to explore. That means backing up as often as going forward and not just trying to drive your nose through the fence because there's a transaction on the other side. That juicy stake on the other side, that transaction, that commission often makes salespeople behave in a way that is counter, directly counter to the role that they might claim that they're staking out as a consultative salesperson. If you're being consultative, the first thing you have to admit is that there's a reasonable shot that you can't help. Qualification is really answering the question, does it make enough sense right now from what I understand to answer the question maybe in a positive way, maybe yes, that's worth going forward with the next conversation. If not, they're disqualified. So all the normal qualification, dance and all that is just garbage. It makes no sense whatsoever. If you sell anything interesting, they better not have a budget for it. I mean, <laughs> that's just ridiculous. The idea that somebody has a budget for something that actually takes a salesperson to sell. If they have a budget for it, they can go click on it in some online whatever and buy it that way, right? And even then, if they know everything about what you're selling, you definitely can't be the expert. You can't be providing the value of knowledge and then the value of a willingness to explore. So I think most salespeople are screwed up and most sales compensation programs are screwed up this one way. They encourage the dog to go through the fence instead of to look for the gate. And then so that desire for the transaction kind of generates maybe alternative behaviors that are not conducive to establishing trust. Yeah, let alone curiosity. Yeah, I mean, they're fundamentally dishonest, right? If I tell you something for the purpose of getting you to do something instead of for the mutual purpose of us understanding something, getting it on the table and being able to talk about it, how is that different from me, you know, physically grabbing you and forcing you to go through a door I want you to go through or through? Connect and sell. Welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Connect and Sell allows your sales reps to talk to more decision makers in 90 minutes than they would in a week or more of conventional dialing. Your reps can finally be 100% focused on selling since all of their CRM data entry and follow-up scheduling is fully automated within Connect and Sell's powerful platform. 
Your team's effectiveness will skyrocket by using Connect and Sell's teleprompter capability, as they'll know exactly what to say during critical conversations. So come on, give your fingers a rest with Connect and Sell. Visit connectandsell.com. You're listening to the Market Dominance Guys with your host, Chris Beal of Connect and Sell and Corey Frank of Uncommon Pro. There's really no difference. I'm saying I'm in a position of, of superior power in that I know more than you do. And I'm going to use that power to cause you to do what I want. Now, I could say sincerely, what I want is always good for you. But that's unlikely to be the case. Honestly, it's unlikely to be the case. And, you know, discovery, I think, is a funny term. In discovery, we tend to think, what are we discovering? Let's discover the stuff about this person that helps us sell to them. Let's discover their pain. Right. Well, maybe their pain isn't what's relevant to them right now. Maybe there's some surround, some context, some way of understanding the situation that will lead to a realization, hey, there's something much bigger that we could be doing here together. And so I think the false negative problem is the one that dominates sales, not the false positive problem. False positives waste your time. Sure. False negatives waste the marketplace. There's a big difference between the two. A false negative means I left the best deal, potentially, to my competitor. It's a negative to me because I didn't ever engage in a way that gave it a shot. It's a positive to my competitor because it's so good. And right. now I've walked away. And yet we do nothing in sales about the false negative problem. And that goes all the way back to something we've talked about before. The original purpose of sales was not to dominate markets and to shape the valuation of companies. The original purpose of sales was to dispose of inventory and generate a flow of gross profits. And when those two come kind of in collision with each other, the old one tends to win because it's tied to the compensation plan and the belief systems of salespeople. So every sales book you pick up, by and large, will tell you to do something to manipulate somebody in order to get them to transact with you. And don't worry, it's okay. <laughs> Right. right. So, but that's pretty widespread. I mean, that's what we train newer sales reps to do in order to be successful, especially in a commoditized environment. If I'm selling whatever the commodity of the day is, let's just go back 15 years ago, long distance services or transport services or I'm a Microsoft service provider, for instance. I mean, I can get the various type of services from many different types of providers. And so why does it engender that type of inauthenticity in order to sell? Is it because of the pressure that how do I differentiate? Yeah, I think so. The, the fundamental failure of not being differentiated or not knowing your differentiation. I actually have never sort of seen a real commodity. I don't know what they are. My example is always coffee beans and the breakthrough script. I breakthrough script for coffee beans. If I'm the coffee bean guy, and, you know, I'm delivering the coffee beans is probably something like this. Well, I believe we've discovered a breakthrough that completely eliminates the fundamental risk that your most loyal customer is going to walk away disappointed because you didn't have their favorite grind. Does that sound undifferentiated? Of course not. No, right? not at all. It makes you think that maybe there's something different, not about the beans, although you do get the idea that I will have a selection that makes sure that your customer's favorite grind is either in there right now or will be discovered. It does give you the idea 
that my deliveries will be accurate and on time because otherwise you might be out of that particular kind of beat, right? So in other words, Chris, if I hear you correctly, whether you're in a commodity or not is less relevant to the fact that how you communicate the messaging around an economic, a strategic, or an emotional message that really is where the differentiator happens. So even if you do find yourself in a commoditized situation, your superior messaging work should be able to pull you out of it to communicate to the prospect where I don't necessarily have to be inauthentic. Right. I don't need to be inauthentic in any way. I'm just trying to set up, I'm trying to sell, sell one product, one product, which is the meeting. And the reason is the psychology of, of, the psychological difference between me coming at the prospect, talking to the prospect, and them coming with me on a journey of exploration is radically different. It's possible for somebody to comfortably confess in a conversation that they voluntarily come to. And it is a matter of confession. Even when we talk about folks' pain, folks don't wear their pain on their sleeve. They really don't. In fact, in business, your pain is a secret it's a weakness and folks in business don't advertise their weaknesses so you must be trusted before somebody's going to tell you their weakness in business you could use it against them you could go out and tell the world you know a Corey's coffee shop is located on a corner that doesn't get any traffic and the starbucks across the street is killing him right don't go to Corey's. i mean if you confessed those things to me i i could be the enemy i could take that information and do something bad with it Right, so right. if I'm coming to your coffee shop, Corey's Clever Coffee, and I don't have an open mind and, uh, about your business, and you don't have a willingness to trust me to tell me what is true in your business, and maybe what's true in your business is this. Gosh, Chris, I'm really frustrated. You know, over there at Starbucks, they got the big line going out the door. I have confidence that when you come into my coffee shop, not only you get better coffee, but it's quieter. A lot of people are annoyed by the music over there. And by all the people going in and out, there's better places to sit. I've got more comfortable chairs and they're set up in a way that promotes conversations. And I don't throw you out in 30 minutes if you've been hanging out too long. And by the way, my Wi-Fi is really fast. These, it bothers me that folks aren't coming in here. Now, that's an interesting conversation. You're confessing a bunch of weaknesses about your coffee shop. And if I'm the really smart coffee guy, I say, so is there ever a problem you know, you were trying to run this really quiet shop. You know, those espresso grinders are really loud. And I've heard some people complain about that in the other shops. Is that something that, you know, given that you're trying to have a quieter environment, that is a problem for you or you handled that? Oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that, says Corey. Well, you know, it turns out that I know somebody who has an ultra quiet grinder. And it works really well with all the beans that we sell. In fact, we roast them a little bit extra and they grind a little bit quieter. Now, anybody's a coffee person listening to this. I'm just making this stuff up, right? I don't know anything about grinding coffee. I do know about sitting in coffee shops and wishing it were quiet, but that's just me. So, but my point is, where do you get to the point, Corey, where you're willing to confess that weakness or those problems to me? somewhere inside that discovery conversation or that exploratory conversation. And if I'm bucking for a transaction, why would you do that? If you think my purpose is to get you to buy something, why would you confess to me? And until you confess to me, how do we have any problems to work on? 
if I sold you, Chris, are you an easy sell? Do you see yourself as an easy sell? Do you see yourself as a, as a pretty uncomplicated mechanism, emotional mechanism to get to that trust? Or yeah. are you a natural, typical left brain, maybe cynical, and I want to buy and I want to be sold? How do I sell to Chris Beal? And for those who are listening, right, this uh, is probably something you should take notes. because Here's a guy who's CEO of a very large company with an unlimited budget. <laughs> Let's get everybody the keys to the kingdom. So how do I sell Chris? Well, first of all, you do have to approach me with something that, that makes me think just a little bit. I have to be intrigued. I have to be curious. Uh, secondly, you've got to do it in a way that is open about what it is that you're doing. Uh, I, I really object to somebody who's asking me the five tricky questions that box me into agreeing with them. Well, wouldn't you agree, Chris? that it's superior to have your children left with some money after you die than being destitute and on the street. <laughs> like, come on, you know? I've actually experienced that recently, and it's like, I, I, I'm not an easy sell once you do that. Once I decide you're trying to manipulate me, I'm really, really difficult. But if you wanna talk about business and the challenges that we might be having, it's, I'm easy. Now, I'm not easy to come up with like a big first transaction. I tend to want to kind of try the relationship out because a lot of stuff that sounds great turns out to be harder than you think. I don't often think people are deceiving me. I just think things tend to be hard. That is, solved problems are less hard than unsolved problems. So by its very nature, the problems that I have that are currently unsolved are the hard ones. You know, and therefore, they probably don't avail themselves to easy solutions. So when somebody offers me an easy solution, I think, ah, it could be so, but this problem could be a hard problem for some other reason. I'll, I'll flip it around. It's like connect and sell. When we sell connect and sell, we sell an easy solution to having lots more conversations. But that's not the problem. That's not a problem we're solving in and of itself. It is an advantage to have a lot more conversations no doubt about it, but it gets us into the world of sales and selling and, and dominating markets is not an easy problem. If it was, we wouldn't have this podcast, right? If that were a trivial problem, oh, I think I'll just dominate this market. Well, sure, choose a market of one, you got a pretty good shot. Once you get to two people, it starts to get a little diverse at 10, this starts to get pretty hard, right? So it's a fundamentally hard problem. I have a belief. All fundamentally hard problems have fundamentally hard math at their core. They either have some chain that everything in the chain has got to work, and so the probability of the whole thing working is the multiplicative uh, you know, outcome of taking all those probabilities in the chain and multiplying them together. So if I have a six-step step chain, and, and it's a 50% chance that any given step will fail, the odds of success are very, very small. And, uh, here's my chance of succeeding. One over two times 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 one over two. What is that? Mm -hmm. Well, that's one over 64, I believe, right? So one out of 64 times, I'll get all the way through that chain of events with only six events in it and a 50-50 shot at each one working. But it's only one out of 64 times the whole thing works. And I just happen to, to think about the world that way. I think people in business should think about the world more in terms of probability or bets and not 
the single bet, but looking at value chains and asking about dependency. So if, I, if this has to happen in order for this have to have to happen, if I must get Corey to come to a meeting, and then if I must get him from that meeting to accept a test drive, and if he must actually show up for the test drive with his people, which all he has to provide us with the data, and if he can get his legal team to actually sign the test drive, DocuSign, and on and on and on. I go down there and I say, well, what is, what is uh, dependent on what? And, you know, there's a problem that people have. This is kind of one of the other problems of business. Salespeople want to just go one step to the transaction. But analytical types want to see how many steps they can put in a process because it shows they're really thorough. Sure. Oh, yeah. And if you put enough steps in a process, one thing that's guaranteed process will never be executed successfully in a finite amount of time. Yeah, you enter too many variables into the system and it's going to be challenging, right? Certainly, right, VCs are notorious for that or private equity. Hey, fetch me another rock. Hey, if you give me the cohort of this year and this year's worth of revenues, then bring it back. And meanwhile, they're going to use that as the cram down, as we've talked about in the previous episode. So I think that's a good springboard into the math of sales then, is right as we've always talked about as you've always taught me here in these 40 odd episodes right is that the the limited variables in a system i can predict if i put my major constraint or my main constraint in the business is trust-based conversations at scale and so if i add that to the top of the funnel it's logical that every other piece of the funnel right the math should restrict down to whatever the output is And if I don't know any or care about any of those variables in the system, then I'm going to be pretty much relegated to just sell more, just whatever my marketing team is able to to, to throw from an AdWords perspective. And if to be this journey to be authentic is only as strong as the weakest link. And if my math isn't right, if my focus on the math isn't right, then Maybe that's why sometimes I'm a little bit more inauthentic on my sales calls because I'm going to try to fix or try to artificially create some ratios in my dial to conversation, conversation to pitch, pitch to meeting, et cetera. That really isn't naturally there. It's not naturally water falling down. But if I can be a little bit more manipulative, maybe I can help with some of these other ratios. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's such a perfect description. It is exactly analogous to the machine in the machine shop or the, uh, in the factory that's supposed to take the blank and it's supposed to turn it into a tube or whatever, right? I remember being in a shop a few years ago that did that. Now, the blank was a titanium blank and the tube was the barrel of the world's lightest sniper rifle. So it's less boring than it sounds, right? A sniper rifle, you could hold at arm's length on one hand and balance on your thumb. So that's a, that was a remarkable product, but somewhere in there, this titanium blank comes in and it's got to be drilled in a very precise way to turn it into a tube. So say instead of accepting what the machine does, the operator decides to, you know, like I'm not getting the yield. I'm supposed to get out of every hundred of these that come in, 97 are supposed to go out as tubes that, that, are gonna, that are good enough to be a barrel, but I'm only getting 92. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the ones aside that didn't turn out right, and I'm going to take them over here, and I'm going to work them by hand, right? That's what I'm going to do. Why? Because I want to I make my number. I want to make my number. Well, 
do you really want to be the person who buys that sniper rifle that happened not to be made in the standard process, but was kind of rejiggered along the way by somebody who's trying to make his number? And that's how we make bad business in business. We force deals all the time Absolutely. in order to make the number. Sometimes it's done through discounting. Sometimes it's done through overpromising. Sometimes it's done through downright lying, which is uh, there's a reason that salespeople have a reputation by and large in the large as not being truth tellers is because the focus on making the number provides a lot of temptation to not run the system, not run the process, and to instead rejigger the output. And, you know, maybe fake it. Say, oh, well, actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to change the testing so that now this appears to be within tolerances, right? Instead of being out, it's going to be in, and I'm going to ship them downstream. And I mean, this is a, a problem that plagued manufacturing for years, and it's the problem that I think is, has actually finally been solved in manufacturing. I'm sure there's, there's backsliding all over the place, right? But in manufacturing, where I used to live, you didn't mess around with the running process by intervening and you went back and said, okay, what is it? What's the root cause? This is like, this is what the Toyota production system taught everybody. And it's even used in hospitals now and all sorts of places you wouldn't expect is, hey, let's report to the truth. Let's not report to a desired number. Let's report to the truth. But sales is this last bastion where since trust is such a big deal, and since the number is held out as the result, you know, what's the, what's the number, right? What, what gets sacrificed? Well, we sacrifice trust in order to make the number. And we do it by producing kind of false deals, bad customers. We take good customers and turn them into bad customers. And uh, by doing the wrong deal, we do this. Everybody does it, by the way, because everybody has constraints on the business. One of the constraints is you have to make enough money to run the business. If you fail to do that, it doesn't matter how good you would have been. All, all prize fighters that are knocked out in the first round are equally good in the second round. It doesn't matter how good they would have been. They're all, they're all, they, have, they win the same number of championship belts, zero. Yeah, zero, right. So you have this issue that has to be solved, but it's very rare that the company's issue of staying in business is actually tied tightly to individual reps need to make the number. What, where that came from was as a way of assessing performance within the territory that had been granted as actually a way to buy the territory. That is, if I make my number this year or exceed my number, then I get the territory for next year and I get a bigger number. Right? Why do I get a bigger number? It's assumed it's easier to grow a territory than it is to hold it in the same yeah. position. Right? So it was actually a purchasing mechanism where this independent business person called the sales rep purchases the territory in addition to enough compensation for their own business to stay alive. And they do it through quote unquote performance by making the number. So there's an agreement that this territory is worth selling to you if you bring this much revenue. And then maybe in clever schemes, some of it has to come from this product and some from this product. And you put all these, you know, cool features in the comp plan, so to speak. But, None of those features actually have to do with solving real customer problems. The assumption is the product solves the problem and caveat emptor, buyer beware. Right, right. Buyer beware doesn't work very well in the B2B world where the buyer is increasingly less expert than the seller because products are increasingly 
complex and interdependent. So the buyer must truly be able to trust the seller. And when the seller corrupts out and says, I'd rather make the number than tell the truth, problems happen. And there are problems not for the seller, the problems for the business, the buying business and the selling business. Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe. Subscribe.